Thank you very much. It was lovely. Did you write that? <laughs> good morning. Good morning. Hope everybody had a good Fourth of July. I know I did. I'm pretty traditional with my holidays, so every year on the Fourth of July, I like to find a British person and fight him. I don't do that. <laughs> Text this morning is uh, from the Gospel of John, chapter six. Verses 22 to 27. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, They themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, you are sovereign over creation, over all that has happened and all that will happen. It says in your word, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Lord God, You work all things according to the counsel of your will. May we rejoice in that. Nothing happens that is outside of your sovereignty. Nothing happens that you have not allowed. You have declared the end from the beginning. You have eternally known of your gospel for our salvation. You are sovereign over our lives. Lord, all of our successes and failures you know. The days of our lives you know the number of. Lord, may we trust in that and in you. May we honor you, may we follow you, may we know you. Lord, and on this weekend as we celebrate our independence, we do thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy in our nation. Lord, we pray for our time as we study in your word that you would bless that time. And I pray, Lord, that later on as we celebrate communion and remember your gospel through that, that you would bless that as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're resuming in John this morning. In this section, we will begin another speech that Jesus gives, just to remind us a little bit of where we were in John, especially about three weeks ago. We looked at Jesus feeding the multitudes, thousands of people he fed with five loaves of bread and two fish. Today, Jesus will interact with many of the people who were in that same crowd, who saw the miraculous sign, and who ate the bread. But they ultimately missed the real significance of what Jesus had done. We'll see that this week 
and, and the following passage where we'll be next week when Jesus says that he is the bread of life. For our passage this week, it's a microcosm of a major issue in the American church today. And so as we begin, I start with a question. If you're a follower of Jesus, why are you a follower of Jesus? And with that, we'll jump right into our passage. And the first few verses of this section are giving the setting of the event. When Jesus feeds the multitudes, the story ends with the crowd wanting to make Jesus king. And Jesus withdrawing up to the mountain. And the disciples setting sail on the sea. The crowd knows that Jesus had not left with his disciples. Verse 22 says, On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. The crowd didn't see Jesus leave with the disciples, because he didn't. But they also did not see Jesus walk on water, nor is there any indication that they are aware that that happened. It's morning, and the crowd is looking for Jesus. Quite possibly, they still harbor hope of making him their king. Verse 23, other boats start to come to where the crowd is. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So, when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. I said Capernaum there. I usually hear it pronounced Capernaum. Every time I read it, I have to pause because it looks like it should say Capernaum to me. Tiberias was a city on the other side of the lake and a group of boats that had come over. And it appears that that was the means through which this crowd traveled to the other side of the lake to see Jesus. Verse 25, the crowd addresses Jesus and they say, it says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus will respond to the crowd. However, he doesn't answer their question. Nor does he tell, him, tell them of his most recent miracle when he walked on water and calmed a storm. Certainly, those would have been incredibly impressive events for the crowd to learn about. But they've just experienced Jesus feeding them. And Jesus will have a rebuke for the real motivation of this crowd. Verse 26, Jesus said to the crowd, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. How can Jesus say that? The people had been highly impressed by what Jesus had done when he multiplied the bread and the fish, John 6, 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And in the following verse in that section, Jesus withdraws because he knows that they want to make him their king. But following Jesus is not merely about being impressed with Jesus. It's not merely about liking Jesus. It's about being a follower of him for who he is. And when he fed this crowd, the bread was not ultimately about, about the bread. In the Gospel of John, the signs that Jesus does are things which point beyond themselves. 
And the feeding of the multitudes and their hunger pointed to Jesus as being the one who feeds a world that is starving in sin. The people come to Jesus because a physical need had been met. And Jesus says that that is the reason why they're seeking him. They weren't seeking Jesus to find out if he was the promised Messiah. They're not seeking Jesus to hear his teachings and learn from him. They're not coming to Jesus to be followers of Jesus. They're coming to Jesus because he satisfied a need. And that was a blessing. But the issue is if they want to make their loyalty and devotion to Christ contingent upon him continuing to fill their physical needs. That's a temptation that the world has. That's a temptation for why many come to Christ or read the Bible or come to church. In the other Gospels, Jesus gives the parable of the sower. He tells of a sower who went to sow his seed. Some fell on a path that was eaten by the birds. The seed is the word of God. It went nowhere. Some fall between the rocks grows for a little bit, but ultimately does not have the water and the soil that it needs to survive and withers away. Some of the seed falls in between thorns and does not have sufficient room to grow. But then you have the seed which falls in the good soil and it grows and flourishes. When Jesus explains the parable, he tells again how the seed is the word of God. For some, they're led astray. For others, they don't have roots And fall away in times of difficulty. For others, they don't have roots and it is the cares and the pursuits of the world which distract them. But of the fourth group, Jesus finally says in Luke 8.15, And for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast and honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Jesus knows that many of these people are not in the good soil and are enamored with the spectacle more than the Savior. They're more focused on what Jesus does than who he is. They're more interested in what he can do to meet their physical needs than their spiritual needs. Why are you a follower of Jesus? Again, there are all sorts of reasons why people turn to Jesus, look for religion. For some, it's because of a health crisis. For some, it's because of a family issue. For some, it's because of despair. And God can use that. God meets us where we are. I'm sure some of us in this room became Christians in the midst of an extremely difficult time. Where Jesus, where we met him in that difficulty. But the issue is if we turn to Jesus because we're in difficult circumstances but don't have beliefs about Christ which are grounded in the reality of who he is, if we come to Christ and are not rooted in the truth of what he did, we will be led astray. Like the seed that is starved out or doesn't have roots or falls on the ground. Jesus is the savior of the world who came into a starving world to provide the eternal nourishment that humanity needed. That was the true point of Jesus feeding the multitudes. He'll specifically say that in our passage from next week where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
Jesus has fed them, but they missed the point of it. The feeding of the multitude was a sign which pointed beyond itself to who Jesus was and appointed to the ultimate sustenance of the human soul which Jesus brings. Why are you a follower of Jesus? It's a serious question to ask yourself, to examine your heart. Jesus says, you were seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Worshiping the gifts over the giver. There's a modern day temptation of the prosperity gospel movement. If you're not familiar with that term, the prosperity gospel, sometimes called the health and wealth gospel, sometimes called the word of faith movement, as a movement that has its origins in America a little more than a century ago, came to greater prominence after World War II, largely grew out of Pentecostalism and the word of faith movement, And it's the idea that it is always the will of God for genuine believers to be materially blessed and physically healthy. It's essentially preoccupied with material blessings. Jesus says, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I'm not saying that this first century audience had a 20th and 21st century notion of the health and wealth gospel. But they're drawn to Jesus because of him fulfilling a physical need. There are elements of what they believe which are picked up in the prosperity gospel movement. And it's not the only place in the New Testament where we see this attitude. Paul addresses a similar situation in the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. They're not looking to take up their cross and follow Christ. They're not looking to die to themselves in their sinful ways. They're there because of a free meal. The theology that looks merely at materially blessings from God has many problems. I want to address a few. First, it's not the gospel. The gospel is the message of Christ crucified and his redemption of sinful people for the glory of God. He died to save souls. The purpose of life is knowing God and enjoying him forever. The purpose of life does not revolve around material blessings. Secondly, The prosperity gospel teaches things which are not biblical. For instance, the idea that it is always God's will for you to be healthy undermines the doctrine of suffering. The Bible does not hide from suffering. Sometimes it is the will of God. He allows it to happen that people do get sick. People do get cancer. People do die. People do struggle with depression. The Bible teaches that the Christian life involves suffering. The good news is that God uses all of that for good for those who love him, according to Romans 8.28. God uses suffering to work his purposes. The story of Joseph, we discussed this last week. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. But through that betrayal, it brings Joseph into Egypt, which allows him to be in a position years later to save his family during a time of famine. We see God's providence and goodness in spite of evil. 
As Genesis ends towards the end of the book, Genesis 50, 20, Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Certainly the greatest example of God using evil for good is the cross itself. Jesus, the perfect, sinless Savior of the world, betrayed by the world that he came to save, but because of that, was able to save the world. God uses suffering to sanctify his people. James 1, verses 2 to 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, they may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Can it all joy? James doesn't say if you meet trials of various kinds, but when you meet trials of various kinds. And to quote my seminary professor, D.A. Carson, if you're not suffering, just keep living. Romans 5, verses 3 to 4, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in them, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Sometimes God uses suffering so that we can have a positive influence on others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. God uses suffering to remind us that he and him alone is our ultimate need. Same passage, 2 Corinthians 1 verses 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened, our strength, beyond our strength, that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we thought that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And we could talk all day about many more passages. God allows suffering. In his sovereign will, he allows it. It is talked about constantly in the Bible and especially in the New Testament. And you have televangelists and authors of popular Christian books who say the opposite of that. But they're teaching an idea that is not biblical. Yes, God does promise ultimate healing in heaven, But there is no promise given in the Bible that all true believers, all good people, all people who really have faith will always experience healing in this lifetime. That is not a biblical teaching. And when we put our hope in teachings that are not biblical teachings that don't happen, we get disillusioned with our faith when we're believing in something that was never true to begin with. Third problem with prosperity theology. Turns God into your genie. God does not primarily exist to fulfill every need you have and give, every, give you everything you want. A lot of things that we want aren't good. Imagine if you had a little kid. You let them eat whatever they want. They want to have cookies for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, pie, cake. Let them stay up as late as they want, whenever they want. Let them watch whatever they want on TV. 
I love my parents. I don't know if they even remember this. The worst decision they ever made from a parenting perspective is when I was about seven, they let me watch the movie Halloween 2. I slept with the lights on for a long time after that. Until I got married. That wasn't that long. Sometimes the things that... And we're not all that much smarter than kids, especially when we compare... Our knowledge of the infinite, perfect knowledge of God, what do we know compared to what a child knows? Just because we think that something would be the best for us or what's good for us, we don't know. Prosperity theology views giving not primarily as a way of giving back part of what God has given to us for the purposes of his kingdom, but as a way to receive material blessings back as a result of generosity. Prosperity theology views prayer as a way to force God to give you what you want. Prosperity theology believes that faith is rewarded by leading to prosperity. Fourth, while turning God into a genie and believing in a theology where good things happen if you're good enough or have enough faith, what that essentially teaches a person is that you're in control of your own life and destiny. But that is not a biblical idea. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign. We are not. Fifth, prosperity theology actually distracts us from true riches. Ironically, God actually wants to give us so much more than what prosperity theology focuses on. But if we just focus on the world, on materialism, on what's physical, we lose sight of that. Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Sixth, Prosperity theology distorts us from the teachings of Scripture because it takes the Bible out of context. It cherry-picks the Bible. We're going through John verse by verse. Prosperity gospel preaching churches do not go verse by verse through books because they have a theological belief system that is not supported by the Scriptures. And so they have to pick and choose what fits into their system. One of my goals whenever I preach is to have a sermon that is so tied into the word of God that to subtract the word from it would create a sermon that made no sense. It was incomprehensible. Some of these televangelists just sort of sprinkle in an out-of-context verse here and there where the message wouldn't have been any different had they not quoted the Bible to begin with. You don't have great scholars and theologians of prosperity theology because an honest reading of the Bible tears the system down. Seventh issue with prosperity theology relies heavily on special revelations from God for their teachers. They essentially speak for God, which includes oftentimes giving unbiblical teaching. And an eighth one, a commonality I've noticed from people who do preach a prosperity gospel is if you listen to what they're saying, if you read the things that they say, if you look at the theology that undergirds what they're saying, the things that they're saying are rooted in heretical teachings which tear down the doctrine of Christ, that teach dangerous things in terms of the Trinity, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Christ, and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, prosperity preaching preachers 
preach a Jesus who is not the eternal God and man. They preach a Christ who was a good man, who lived a perfect life, but who's no inherently better than any person, any of us. And so the things that he did, we're just as capable of doing. That is not a biblical idea. That's not a minor disagreement either. That is a totally different Christ, and it results in a totally different gospel. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is the God who was in the beginning, who made all things. He is not simply a man. He is fully God and fully man, but they reduce his divinity, lift up his humanity, and point that as a model for how the rest of humanity can be. But it runs into a dangerous heresy along the way. I'm hammering on the topic this morning because it's highly influential in American churches and in churches throughout the world. Many of the best-selling Christian books are written by prosperity preachers who do not preach the word, but who preach a worldly message. Many, I would say most, televangelists, not all, but most, preach a prosperity gospel. Our world eats up prosperity theology because it tells us that it's all about us. And it co-ops the gospel and replaces it with the world. But the Bible says, love not the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What's around us, even our own health itself, is not the central aspect of being a follower of the gospel. It is knowing Jesus, growing with Jesus, helping others know Jesus. Jesus says, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Why are you a follower of Jesus? Is it because he is the way, the truth, and the life? Is it because he is glorious? Is it because he is worthy? Is it because he is the savior of the world? Is it because of the gospel that you were dead in your sins and that the only way to redemption was through his life and death and because of the shedding of his blood? And I'm hoping and praying that I'm preaching to the choir as I say this. Because for those of us who love the word of God, who have a reverence for the scriptures, the prosperity gospel must be viewed as a vile and counterfeit gospel that is not teaching the word of God. But here's my challenge. Because while most of us don't believe in a health and wealth gospel, yet we have so many blessings in our country that there could still be a temptation to fall into the trap of thinking that we're good and that our lives should be good. We should have good families. We should have good jobs. We should have happy marriages. We deserve to not really suffer. That's a constant temptation. And I think it's a constant temptation that we face in America. But the Bible doesn't promise that. Why are you a follower of Jesus? The biblical message is not that we should follow Jesus so that everything will be easy. It's that when you follow Jesus, you're taken from death to life. It's not a promise of ease, but it's a promise that the difficulties in your life have a purpose. It's not a promise of getting what you want, but it's a promise of all things working together for good. People wanted to follow Jesus because he took care of a physical need. 
But Jesus came to tend to our spiritual needs. Final verse of the passage. Jesus has given his rebuke to the crowd. He's exposed their heart and the real reason they're following him. Verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus tells them to work for the food that endures to eternal life, and that is the food which Jesus came to bring. Not only did Jesus come to bring it, but it comes only through Jesus. At the end of the verse, it reminds us that it is Jesus and him alone upon whom God has set his seal. Jesus is the one who has come to bring eternal life into a sinful world. And he offers that life to you today. If you believe in him by faith, knowing that you're a sinner and that Jesus has come to forgive you of your sins and to reconcile you to God. Why do you believe in Jesus? I believe in him. Because he's the savior of the world. Would you pray with me? Our heavenly father. Let us come to Jesus. Because he is the truth. Salvation comes through him alone. Lord. Regardless of what we face. He is with us. Lord let us know him in truth of who he is. And because of that, let us worship him for it. In Jesus' name, amen. We are doing communion this morning. The guys, deacons, would like to come forward. This passage talks about two kinds of substance. Physical, which is fleeting and temporal. And spiritual, which is the source of eternal life through Christ. And it's fitting that as we discuss these themes, we observe communion today. At the Last Supper, Jesus took the bread and the cup. They were at a meal. And there, too, Jesus took common elements of a meal, and he pointed to the greater spiritual meanings through what he was about to do the next day when he was crucified. The bread was a symbol of his body, which was broken for sin. The wine was a symbol of his blood, which was shed for sin. It's not that those elements bring salvation in themselves. As Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But it is an opportunity to remember the gospel and to once again remember the death that the Lord Jesus died so that we could have life. At this church, we practice open communion, which means that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is invited to participate. Before we do pass out these elements today, I want to make a couple of quick notes because this is going to be a little bit different due to the pandemic. The bread and the cup are stacked into two cups, uh, if anybody's worried, I, I wore gloves when I did it. <laughs> the stacked in two cups, so you'll, you'll pick up both of them together. We'll take them each one at a time, but just for logistical purposes, so we didn't have everybody coughing and then reaching into this pile of bread. Um, you'll, you'll pick up both cups together. Um, if you are uncomfortable taking communion today, either because of the virus, or because of a spiritual reason, or because... You're not a believer. Just kind of wave them off. Nobody's paying attention. They're not going to, you know, they're not keeping a list or anything like that. Nobody's, nobody's paying attention. Um, when you do grab for yours, try to 
try to pinpoint the, the cup that you're going for. Try not to, like, you know, put your forearm on to, like, five or six of the cups as you, as you get it. Uh, and again, we'll, we'll pick them up both at the same time, but we are going to, as we always do, take both elements together. And uh, so I have these now. Mm-hmm. 